Amen. I am not skilled to understand what God, God has willed, what God has planned. I only know in His right hand sins one who is not saved. touch on a topic today that's very adult, okay? So I need you to be mature when that time comes. It's a toughie, all right? So I want to fair warn you, I'm going to go somewhere that I'm guarantee you that it is probable that no one in this room, one of the verses that I'm going to read today, has ever heard a preacher preach this verse. It's, it's probable that you've never heard it preached before. And maybe a few exceptions, some of you have been in the church for a really long time, praise God, um, but uh, this is a verse that normally would not be preached, okay? And I'll and explain to you why uh, as we go over it, but I'm not going to dwell on it because it is a very mature thing, okay? And I don't, I don't want to make a light uh, of what it's about. All right, that being said, so you know we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you an object lesson or illustration so we can understand, and we're going to talk about a couple of things. 
And then I'm going to give you a systematic theology, which you now know what that is. I have prepared you for it. I hope, or God has. And then I'm going to, then we're going to read the verses. It's going to be in that order, okay? And we, when we read the verses, we will read them pretty much just straight through. We don't have to break them all down. They're very uh, point blank and direct, even though a couple of them are very uh, mature in the way that they have to be viewed, okay? So the first thing is, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on Michael Brister. You ready? If you went out to mow one of the yards that you always mow, so this is a yard, you maybe mow it all, once a week, all summer long. And you go uh, out there to mow that lawn, and you find laying in the middle of the lawn a shovel and an axe. What would you do? So it needs mowed, it's getting kind of tall, but laying in the middle of the lawn is a shovel and an axe. What would you do? Okay, so Michael would choose to mow around it. Now let's assume for a moment then you came back three or four weeks in a row and the shovel or the axe are laying there every time. Would you continue to mow around it? Okay, you'd find somebody like to say, why is the shovel and axe here, right? Because the shovel and the axe don't belong. Makes sense. They're out of place. They're laying in the middle of the yard. And when you mow around it, even a second time coming back to mow around it, that grass that's right there where they are is going to grow up. Unless, of course, you weed eat around it, right? So you're very intentional to use the weed eater to go around and keep that spot down right where the shovel and the axe are, were laying in the yard. And if you don't eventually get that shovel and axe up out of there, it's going to make a lot of work every time weed eating around there. In fact, it's going to be hard to weed eat and not make the grass right around where the shovel and axe lay in look different from the grass that's mowed, right? It might wind up being lower or whatever, okay? Let's assume then, let's take it to another environment. You're walking uh, across your living room, and in the middle of your living room floor is laying a McDonald's bag, and in it is the leftover wrappers from somebody's McDonald's. What do you do about it? Do you step over it? You walk around it. You pick it up and throw it away, okay? Garbage laying in the middle of your living room floor is out of place. It doesn't belong there, but it's quite often there, isn't it? Shouldn't be, and it has to be cleaned up. What if there's dishes sitting in your sink? Do you wash the dishes? Dishes are technically in a place where dishes belong if they're sitting in your sink, right? But if they're sitting there dirty and they sit there for a couple of days, the longer they sit, the harder it gets. Right? Do you wash them just simply because they're in the sink? Or do you keep on walking by and leave them sit there? What if there are clean dishes sitting in the dishwasher? You can't eat off them. You can't use them. They are in a place where maybe dishes belong, at least for a time, but now you can't use them. Do you take them out of the dishwasher and put them in the cupboard? Or you just keep fetching dishes out of the dishwasher every time you need one. And then what happens when you're halfway through that load of clean dishes and then you've got to put some more dishes in there because now you've got dishes sitting in the sink and you don't want to wash them by hand, so you put them in the dishwasher. Do you just rewash the dishes that were still in the dishwasher from last time? Or do you take the clean ones out and put them out in the cupboard and then put the new ones in the dishwasher and wash the dishes? How about dirty clothes piled up? I visited a young person in our church once and found out that they had dirty clothes piled up in every room of their house, averaging between a foot and two foot deep. I'm not judging anyone, but is that where dirty clothes really belong? How about sand in your gas tank? Any mechanics in the room? How does your car run with sand in the bottom of your gas tank? clearly doesn't belong. If sand goes through your gas tank and into your engine, your carburetor or whatever, what is the remedy? When the car, the car is going to stop running, you know that, right? Because cars are not meant to run on sand. So then what? What do you have to do next? Somebody with a mechanic background a little bit, what do you got to do? You might have to rebuild or replace another. Okay, you might have to rebuild or replace it. Okay, so now you've got a plugged fuel filter and the car stops running, so what would you do to solve that? 
change the fuel filter. Okay, so if you don't, if it does get to the carburetor or the engine, you've got a real problem, and it probably wouldn't be regular sand, right, that would do that. So that's a good point. The point is, you got things out of place affect the place that they are out of place in. There's no way around that. If something is out of place, it affects the place that is out of place in. All right, so the systematic theology that is found in this text is one of purity. So if you were to take purity, the pureness of a thing, purity means it's whole, for example, if you, uh, does anybody understand the, the way the proof systems works with alcohol? If you have wine, it might be uh, 20 proof. What does that mean? 10% alcohol. You might have vodka, might be 80 proof vodka. That's 40% alcohol. So if it's 40% alcohol, what's the rest of it? The other 60%. Something else, right? Could be uh, rice or could be uh, grapes or whatever, sugar or what, whatever else it's made of. So it's 40% pure. So we understand the concept of purity. Purity is when something is through and through. You ever seen a silver, a piece of silver? An ounce of silver, a troy ounce. Now on it it'll say 0.9999%. What does that mean? It means it's, it's not quite 100% silver. It takes a lot to get it 100%. But if it's 0.9999, that is sufficient standard silver to say that that is 100% silver. Even though it's technically not. But it's very pure silver, so then it's worth what an ounce of silver is worth. But if you had a, a thing marked ounce of silver on it, and it says 0.4444, that's over 50% not silver, so it's not going to be worth the same as an ounce of silver. We understand the concept of purity. So now if you look at Scripture in the light of purity from the beginning to the end, Adam and Eve were made pure, weren't they? And sin entered in through temptation, through deception, etc., Sin entered in, and now Adam and Eve are not pure. And you can take that all the way to the end. Those who are in heaven, after they die, or after the new heaven and the earth comes, will be pure. Right? So you can see purity through time all the way across. But I submit to you, you can also see it through Scripture. Now going back, we're not going to read it, but in chapter 22, beginning in verse 9, we had an illustration of the principle of purity. In 23... 13 through 30, it talked about marriage, the marriage relationship, purity in the marriage relationship. And 23.1, I'm sorry, yeah, I said that right. Okay, and in 23.1 through 8, it gets very specific here. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Somebody give me an amen. This is God's word. Do you know what amen means? So let it be. All right, here we go. This is God's word, 23, 1 through 8. It's going to go by fast. Hang on. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. If your member has been damaged, you cannot go into the assembly. Two. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. If you were born not to an Israelite, you were not allowed to go to worship God. doesn't mean you couldn't believe in God or be a follower of God or be a proselyte or even be called a Jewish proselyte, part of the Jewish religion, but you can't go into the tabernacle later of the temple to worship. Notice it says, they shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even any of his descendants under the tenth generation. So in other words, if this guy was born out of a rape, he can't go into the assembly of the Lord if one of his parents are illegitimately Jewish or Israelite. And nor can his children, nor his children's children, or his children's children, or his children's children. You get the point. That entire family line is disallowed from going into the temple and worshiping God once the temple is built. This is pre-temple, so going into the tabernacle then. Not allowed to go. Their line for 10 generations. This basically means forever. Illegitimate children were never allowed to go in to worship God if they were illegitimate to the Jews. Verse 3 says, no Ammonite or Moabite, this is two people groups. If you remember, we did do the book of Joshua a couple years back. You remember they had, they had to go through that area where the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites were, and they had trouble. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, 
none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Doesn't mean they can't be proselyted over to Judaism. Doesn't mean they can't be technically involved in the faith of God. It says they can never go into the temple, never go into the tabernacle for the tenth generation, which basically means forever. Four, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So they, you remember this story? Maybe, maybe not. But there was a prophet. They hired him to curse the Israelites, and he didn't wind up doing that. He spoke what God wanted him to, and a blessing on the Israelites. But because they hired him to curse the Israelites, their descendants, this is generations ago already, and now it's going to be generations more, forever the descendants of the Ammonites could never go into the temple of God. Not even into the Gentile section. Okay? Ever. That's it's pretty serious stuff. Five. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Verse six. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So they go and Esau's brother was Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, who would become the founding person of this entire race, right, entire culture. And so Edom, they were not to detest the Edomites. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. As much as the Egyptians wronged the Israelites, nonetheless, the Israelites were preserved initially by the Egyptians who would have basically ceased to exist, all starved out if they were not moved in there at the time they were moved in. And yes, it went wrong in the 440 years after that, but the bottom line is they were not to detest an Edomite and they should not detest an Egyptian because they were aliens in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So the Edomites would not be allowed to go into the assembly of the Lord to worship God for three generations nor would the Egyptians for three generations. So once they were proselyted, proselyted which means they were won over to, to the Israelite religion, three generations later. So if a, da a dad was allowed to be in the Israelite religion, his son couldn't go in. His son's son couldn't go in, but his son's son's son could go in and worship God in the Gentile court. Never as a Jew, because he's not pure blood Jew, but in the Gentile court, he'd be allowed. But his dad couldn't. And his grandfather couldn't, and his grandfather's grandfather couldn't. Right? Three generations later, he could go in. This is about purity in public worship. Do you understand? What we do here, not just there in the tabernacle or in the temple, right? what we do here is important. <clears throat> Our worship is important. You ought to cut, like, that's why we say, and a lot of times we don't do it, but you should be preparing yourself at midnight the night before, or 10 p.m. the night before to worship. You're coming to worship the holy God of heaven, the God who demands <clears throat> purity from his worshipers. And if you came in here divided, something was out of place. But it's not only this. This is public worship, but it's not only this because we have a relationship with God and His Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. If you've been saved, His Holy Spirit is in you, which means if you're walking in the woods and thinking about God, that's worship and you ought to be pure. You ought to be right. And understand that things that happened in here to make this unpure so that they couldn't go in, could they control when a man became 21 and realized that his mother was raped by a person of another nationality, he's not pure-blood Israelite, could he do anything about that at all? It's totally outside his control. Things can happen to you that are totally outside your control, and yet you need to achieve a level of purity to be in the right place in worshiping God. And I submit to you, it's a level of purity that we may not, in our own power, ever be able to achieve. The text goes on. Now we're going to see purity in personal hygiene, beginning in verse 9. When you go out as an army against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. In other words, if you want to have God bless your efforts while you're trying to do what it is you want to do, you could say for this, it's like when you go on your job, you ought to keep yourself from every evil thing. 
When you set out to fix your car, when you set out to fix your house, you ought to keep yourself from every evil thing. I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat in somebody's living room praying for a miracle with them and at the same time having a conversation saying, oh, let's be realistic here. If we're going to beg God for a miracle, is there anything that we kind of sort of ought to maybe be doing if we're expecting God to intervene on our behalf? Should we be giving up lusting? Should we be tithing? Should we be serving? Should we be attending church? You, you, you came here today begged me to come to your house and pray for you for a miracle that God would intervene in a powerful way with no purity. Sometimes we're asking God to take a bath in our filth. And that's exactly what we're not supposed to be doing. So if you're going to go out to war, if you're going to go out and do something, understand this could be spiritual warfare as well. If you're going to do battle with demons and evil spirits, and by the way, to be clear, you are going to do battle with demons and evil spirits. You can ignore it and pretend it ain't going to happen, but the truth is, it's going to happen. Odds are, if you don't think you are currently right now, it's because they're actually winning. If you don't think that you're facing evil spirits on a daily basis, it's because the evil spirits are probably actually winning because they intend to be duplicitous, to be secret. They know how to hide in shadows and move silently. That's what they do every day, all day long. If you don't notice them, it's because they're actually winning the battle. Now, when you realize, hey, I didn't think that. That's not of me. I don't want anything to do with that. That could be you winning the battle. So he said, when you go out as an army against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. It's about purity. Verse 10, if there is among you any man who is unclean, here it is, by the way, this is that verse. If there is any man among you who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp, but it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. So in other words, if you're sleeping, men, and something happens while you're sleeping, and something comes out of your body while you're sleeping, according to this verse, they would not be allowed to be in town. You understand the damage that you're doing to society, to the people around you, to your children, by allowing things to be out of place? We're not pursuing purity, yet we expect the fruits of purity from the people that we're influencing. We want people to step up for us, to be there, to do the things they're supposed to do. We want the laws to be right, the government to be right, we want the crime to stop, the villainy to end. We want all of that from people who are impure, while we are ourselves not being pure or pursuing purity, while we are made pure by Christ and His righteousness. The double standard that we're applying, that's why you don't go and talk to somebody who's not saved that they need to stop lying. If you do, you say it like this. You say, no, you tell lies that people aren't going to trust. You tell lies, it's going to cause a problem. You're going to tell more lies to cover your lies. It's not good for you. It's a sign of a lack of integrity, etc., Right? And they're going to go, oh, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying very logically, so i got to stop doing this. Or actually, what I really need to do is get better at doing this so no one will know that I'm doing this so I won't get those ill effects that what you're saying. Right? But if you get as far as you need integrity, maybe you say, well, you need to center your life on something that will last. And if you center your life on something that won't last, it's going to fall away. When it does, you're going to fall into more trouble. But if you center your life on something that will last, It'll last forever, and you can actually have the integrity, hence the purity that you're looking for, that something that lasts forever is Jesus, there's the gospel, you get saved. Now you can stop being a liar. But truly, while you're sleeping, sound asleep, if you have an emission, is there anything that you can do about it? On the surface, it appears no. There's nothing I can do. I'm sleeping. Uh, I was sitting with uh, a couple once, and the man told me how he, had, he would uh, reg fairly regularly have dreams about other women. And you could see it. it was crushing his wife as he's telling the tale, that he fairly regularly had dreams about other women. And he said, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't, it's not like I can control my dreams. Your dreams are an outlet from your subconscious. And so, if you're living an impure life daily, you're going to go to sleep and your mind is going to try to wrestle with that in relation to all the It's going to try to have a systematic theology of your existence and you're going to wind up dreaming about things that you don't want to dream about. And yes, there are evil spirits. 
As a young Christian, I regularly had dreams about things that I didn't want to dream about. And I submit to you, it took me years. But now, when I have a dream that I don't want to dream about, I wake up. And that puts an end to it. What I'm saying is, you can say you can't control what's happening while you're sleeping, but I submit to you, you can. You can say you can't control other than giving your best effort what the outcome of a battle or a fight is, but I submit to you, you can. You can by ridding yourself of all evil and seeking purity and allowing God to do what God wants to do. And then, if you lose, you can assume that the loss is actually a victory. Verse 11 says, said, But it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. So in other words, if he realizes that something has been out of place and he puts that thing in place, he then from that point on can re-enter the camp and be functional. 12 says, you shall also have a place outside the camp. You'll like this one. It kind of might make you chuckle a little bit, uh, especially if you know an inside joke. There's one brother in the room that will laugh about this if he, uh, if he thinks about it in just the right light. Verse 12 says, you shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall leave a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. In other words, God commanded in his word, if you're going to poop outside, you've got to bury it. And somebody's got to tend the lawn afterwards, right? And they'll probably appreciate if it's buried. Very much, I think. Why? Because this is about purity. 14 says, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. Hold on, because this is going to step on your toes in a way that nothing else will. You got a messy house? God walks in your house. Think God wants to walk across your garbage? You got floor, clothes laying on the floor? You think God wants to walk across your dirty clothes? Your bedroom a mess? Is your bedroom a mess? You don't have to answer. If your bedroom's a mess and you're inviting God into your bedroom, you think God's going to go in there and say, hey, this is a nice place. Is God going to change his standards of purity and rightness just because you can't be bothered or put in the extra effort to fix the things that you're not fixing? I, I didn't write it. It says God comes into your camp to assist you versus your enemies. Then the place that he comes into, it said there must not, he must not see anything indecent, read out of place or wrong, incorrect among you, lest he turn away from you. Then in 15.16, it's purity in the treatment of disadvantaged. 15 says, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. So they were supposed to be respectful and caring to the disadvantaged, and that was an example of purity. If you're in the right, you will treat everyone right. If you're in the right and you're okay with who you are, and you know what you are, and you have integrity, then when someone lies to you, you can go, oh, I pity them. Not, I'm so mad! If you're in the right, you can treat disadvantaged people, lost people, struggling people with a purity and a compassion that is commanded by God. And then 17:18, we see purity in cultic personnel. So in false religions and in our relationship with them, 17 says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. This is a real job, by the way. You get paid for it. It's pretty good pay. And if you go serve in the cultic temple and have sex with people to make it rain, you get paid pretty well, turns out. 18. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, if you get paid for doing what you shouldn't do, you can't give it to God. That's what it says. 
That's the end of our text for today. But just as a recap, the chapters before included the illustration of the principle of purity, and we talked about that time about breaking the system and how an intentional lack of purity breaks the system and is dealt with very harshly by God. We talked about the purity of the marriage relationship, and then today, purity in public worship and purity in personal hygiene and purity in treatment of the disadvantaged and purity in cultic personnel. And I submit to you that if you only get one thing out of this sermon, it better be this. That when a thing is out of place, it affects the place in which it is out of place in. Chiefly because God, frankly, ain't going to put up with it. He's not going to. He doesn't have to. If you choose to live a lost person's life at the end of your life, He will put you where you belong. Not because he wants to, but because that's the way the system is set up. If you live a life rather recognizing who God is through Jesus, his son, and try to be a Christian, try to live the best you can, try to reach new heights in Jesus, try to seek personal holiness and purity. If you try to be the best person that you can and fix the things that you see that are clearly out of place, somebody once said, if you recognize a problem, it's probably your problem to do something about. If you will do that, live like that, make a difference in this world, you'll be holy like God is holy, not holy as He is, but holy like God is holy. And that is what we are called to. And being called to that, then at the end of your life, you'll be put where you belong. In heaven and in ultimately the new heaven and earth, permanently, eternally. It's no joke. When a thing is out of place, it affects the place in which it is out of place. But these principles extend not only to things like a cup sitting on the chair, like dirty dishes sitting in the sink a few days later, or a shovel and an axe laying in the yard, or pollutants in the gas tank. Not just things, but also actions, attention, and motivation. These are things that people have that they can't hold in their hands. But these actions, attention, and motivation can easily be out of place. Action includes both actions and a lack of action. James 4.17 said it this way, for him, to know, for him who knows good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And by the way, just let's extrapolate that for one second, shall we? For him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you know what to do and you don't do it, and I submit to you, you have known what to do and didn't do it at some point in time in your life, that sin and that sin results in a break between you and God. It was not meant that you should have a break in the relationship between you and God. That's why it's called death. It is the opposite of life. Life was meant that you would have a relationship with you and God. That's what it was made for. Life was created so we could have a relationship between us and God, a right relationship, a relationship of holiness and purity between us and God. That when God stops over, He won't be ashamed to see what's going on in our life. The righteousness that He sees is Jesus' righteousness. The garbage that He sees, that's ours. And we've got to do something about it. So that when he stops over, he's not embarrassed by what he sees. I'm not talking about your house. I'm talking about your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, which we won't go there and read it because I'm going to go through quite a few here, talks about repentance without regret. We turn to God and we say, Oh God, I'm sorry. Please help me. Please take care of my life. Please fight my enemies for me. Please provide for my finances. Please provide for my house. But we have no regret. It's not productive. It's repentance out of place. If you turn to God and say, No, I, I, I realize I've done wrong and I want to turn away from what I've done and I want to turn to you and do what you want me to do. Now we're talking about salvation. We're talking about salvation. But repentance without a godly regret, without a, a godly sorrow, that's worthless. Repentance, that kind of repentance without a godly sorrow or regret produces death, according to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Acts 3.19 says it this way, Repent and return to Him and your sins will be wiped away. That's what God says. 
Proverbs 28.13 says it this way, He who conceals wrongdoing will not prosper, but he who forsakes them will find compassion. God loves you. God knows you're a screw-up. If you're a screw-up, own it and then fix it. God knows I'm a screw-up. He knows what I'm doing wrong, and I've got some projects, and they're underway. But I'm not going to fix them by myself. I'm going to fix them in the strength of the Lord, or it's just not going to happen. You say, well, I've got to do this, but I just can't. Funny how Scripture says you can if you're supposed to do it in the Lord. Scripture says you can. Actions, including a lack of actions. In fact, when you act and you steal, we know a person who steals to be a thief. We know a person who's a Christian not to be a thief, therefore they ought not steal, but sometimes they do. But that doesn't make them a thief because they are identified with Christ. They're just a Christian who steals. That's something that's out of place. Theft is out of place in your life. It's a lack of purity. It's a darkness that needs to be burnt out. And and sometimes it takes heat. And when the heat is applied and the metal, the pure metal starts to bubble, that metal can go a much higher temperature than the impurities in it and eventually you see a little as the dirt, the dust, the foul material that can't stomach the high temperature is burnt off. As the dross is burnt off, the metal becomes pure. That's what life is about. God is trying to give you pure life. Purity in action. Secondly, there is attention. 1 Timothy 4.1 says that there will come a time where there will be a people who are falling away from the faith, paying attention to evil spirits and doctrines of demons. Listen to me. A people falling away from the faith. Well, in order to be falling away from the faith, you have to first be standing with the faith, or at least present. I mean, you can fall over sitting down, I suppose, but you have to be present with the faith in order to be falling away from it. And here is a people, by Paul teaching Timothy, that will be falling away from the faith. And how are they falling away from the faith? By putting their attention in the wrong place. Their attention in the wrong place, paying attention to evil spirits and doctrines of demon. Don't think that every demon that ever lived didn't have his own systematic theology. He does. And you may bump into it and go, this is a pretty well-developed system. This makes a lot of sense. We base this on this, and this could be like that. Have you ever heard the systematic theology that says that the Bible is full of errors? There's no errors in the Word of God. That's a demonic, antichrist, systematic theology. And it'll go through the text place after place after place, and point them out. Of course, in your right mind, analyzed with the Holy Spirit, you can look at every single one of them and see that's not true. There's no mistake there. There's a place at which Jesus heals a man and he's coming out of town. And another gospel records that he healed the same man going into town. Oh, that's an error in the Bible. Except that now, today, present day, they can nail down where Jesus healed that man. Geographically, there's no addresses at that time. right? We don't have miles or lineage, and even if we did, it'd be a mess, because you'd be be trying to measure to something that no longer exists, because the earth has changed over 2,000 years. But they can nail down where that man was healed within a 90-foot radius almost 2,000 years later. Because in order for it to be going out of one town and into the other town, it has to be on a certain road, past a certain marker, and before a certain marker, and so you can know where that man was healed within 90 feet. 2,000 years later. Major events have taken place on the earth in the last 100 years that we can't nail down to within 90 feet. They say, well, that's the wrong leader. Paul was preaching during that time, and that wrong leader didn't live. And then later, they've now found archaeological and historical evidence that proves that, yes, indeed, that guy was leading there, despite previous history, which says that he was not. He was leading at the exact day and time that the Bible says he was. 
There are no errors in the Bible, but there is a demonic, antichrist, systematic theology that says that there are errors. And you've probably heard it, I would assume. You may even be sitting here today believing it, and if, it is, if you do, you need to repent of it because God's word is perfect and inerrant. Yes, I understand in English the translation may vary from the original language, but the bottom line is if you have the Holy Spirit in you reading this, which is a translation that actual translation of the original language, you will get the actual meaning of what God is trying to teach you because that's part of God's process to bring you what? To purity and holiness. You know why you don't get the actual teaching of what it actually says and actually do what it actually says? Because your attention is misplaced. Because you spend time on your projects on your TV, on your phone, on your games, on your hobbies, whatever, to whatever degree, while taking your attention and focus off of the Word of God. And while you're doing that, here comes this guy that says, oh, and by the way, there are a few errors in the Bible. Paul said to Timothy, don't you be like that. There will be those who are falling away from the faith Paying attention to evil spirits and doctrines of men, and he was of demons. Sorry, and he was saying, "Put your attention in the right place." Proverbs sixteen seventeen basically says, "The highway of the upright—that means those who are doing right, those whose attention are in the right place—the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way, in other words, he pays attention to what he's doing. He makes it as right as he knows how. He who watches his way preserves his." life. Simply put, if your eyes are on Jesus, you'll be fine. If your eyes are on the other sheep or the government or your paycheck or your jobs, your hobbies, if that's where your eyes are, you may be in trouble. You ever been driving the car along the road, take a nice long look over your left shoulder and you're looking for a little too long and then you go back to look and what happened? Right? When I was in driver's ed, he said, don't look anywhere too long. If you look anywhere but down the road for too long, the car's going to go wherever you're looking. It doesn't make any sense. Why would I aim the car looking down here? Why would I aim the car to the right? Because I'm looking, I clearly cannot drive the car down there. Your brain will do what your brain's going to do, and that is it's going to give emphasis to whatever you put your attention on. And I'm submitting to you that purity in Christ is calling us to put our attention on the way that God is leading us forward and to pay no attention, to dismiss, to go to every effort to cut out the teachings of evil spirits and the doctrines of demons. The final one is motivation. And we'll take just a second on this because there's a line, I think it's from Hamlet, that says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I submit to you that I know, I already know that you, and I look at your faces, everyone, every single person in this room, me included, even Curtis is having trouble staying awake because he stayed up a little too late last night. I love you, brother. Even though that's true, every one of us has good intentions. There's nobody that came here today to hear from the Word of God that said, well, I'm going to go there, but I'm just going to put in my time and I don't really mean anything by it. Or I'm not going to let my life be affected by what God has done. There's no, we're, not, we're not totally trying to blow it off. If you're totally trying to blow it off, you wouldn't be here. right? So the motivations of a human are very, very important but they can just as easily put, be put out of place. Hence, that famous line, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Proverbs 6, I'm going to flip there real quick. won't take me but a second. If you want to go with me, you can. We're coming into the conclusion. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 12. The wisdom, we believe, of Solomon, recorded in short, pithy statements or poetry throughout. 6.12 starts like this. It says, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false, a false mouth. In other words, if you put your mouth out of place, say one thing, do another, that kind of thing. A wicked person, I'm sorry, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, fingers who with perversity in his heart devises evil continually, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. If you're playing games, leaving things in your life out of place, if you're playing games, saying one thing, doing another, 
If you're playing games, talking about holiness and salvation through Jesus Christ, but leaving your life a mess while you could be doing something about it, you need to understand that ultimately calamity will come suddenly and instantly you will be broken and there will be no healing in your life for what you have done. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Just verse 9. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, just verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Do you know the end of the story of Solomon? The wisest man to ever live? That's the warning that could have saved him from experiencing the calamity of Proverbs 6. But it did not. Because that man Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, refused to put his attention where it belonged and live in personal purity. You and I are no better than he is. What are your motivations? Are you desiring to do things the way the Lord would have you to do them? Are you desiring to learn that which it is that God would have you to know and apply it in your life? When you walk out of here today, what will be the most important thing that you learned from the Lord, not from me, but from the Lord. What are your motivations? Isaiah 29, last one, verse 20. Isaiah 29, 20. Almost there. Isaiah verse, chapter 29, verse 20 says this, For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil, will be cut off. Where is your attention? What are your actions? What are your motivations? Ultimately, this is about getting it right. It's about getting it whole, complete, and getting it wholly right, or rightly whole. I submit to you that if you are daily attempting to share the gospel, or dad's in the room, if you are daily attempting to... Re raise your children in a godly way, and yet you are unwilling to pitch your fiercest efforts toward purity in yourself and in your life and in your house, if you are unwilling to be pure in Christ, then I submit to you that your attention is wrong, your motivation is wrong, because your motivation is not actually to be what your child needs you to be. It is to be what you want to be. It is to go after the things that you want or the things that you see. If you're sitting here today saying, I am a man of holiness, but you've watched soft porn, girls in bikinis doing gymnastics, or rated R movies, guys blowing people's brains out, blood spraying everywhere, in the last week you need to question your motivations, your attentions, and your actions and decide whether or not you are becoming a man of purity in Christ. Because if you are not, when you find that you cannot do what it is that you are called to do, it will not be God's fault because He came to walk with you and you didn't clean up your act. He's tired of bathing in our filth and He's asking us to be pure. When a thing of out of, is out of place, it cannot help but affect the place that it is in. What's in you that needs to go so that Christ can reign? What's in you that needs to go so that you can be God's man or woman? I understand why it happens. It happens because cleaning it up is a matter of time and we're so busy. I understand why it happens because we've saved a little effort by leaving it there instead of cleaning it up or taking it where it's supposed to be, putting it, forcing it to be what it's supposed to be, we've saved a little effort. We've gained a little momentary comfort because we didn't let it bother us. Because we didn't let it tax us. 
But I also understand the results. Ultimately, labor is needed. And if that needed labor goes undone to the end, according to what we have read, the results will be God bringing an end that we are not interested in participating in. The results are, we will carry that burden. If you're walking on garbage, if you're failing your tasks, if your mouth is full of smut, if your eyes are receiving junk, and even if, let's say, for example, there was a nocturnal emission that you would say was completely outside your control, but now you're wondering if maybe it's not so much outside your control. If someone in your life did something that you wish they hadn't done, but it affected you, and you're carrying around that burden because you have not been able to sufficiently forgive. These are the results. Needed labor that must be done, carried burden daily, and worse, a distracted nature. So that it's always there nagging at you, always wondering, should I? Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I have? Repairs will be necessary. You must pay attention. You must repair things as you go, as they come to your attention. And periodically, you must make a massive adjustment, repenting and turning to the Lord and letting God fix that which truly needs to be fixed and seems like it is outside your ability. And it is probable that it is indeed outside your ability and you need the Lord to fix it. So repent and turn unto the Lord and say, Lord, if it remains unfixed, it's up to you. But I, for my part, will be pursuing purity and holiness. A few warnings or caveat. The price extension is too great. That little bit of effort that you saved, that little time that you saved, that comfort that you gained by not addressing the problem that was the thing that was out of place, the, the extension of the price for that is too great. If it, and I, I'll just use a simple example. This morning I was sitting in my living room and last night Ariana had a cup of milk before she went to bed and she left the cup sitting on the arm of the chair. I'm writing the final conclusion of this and I look up and there is a cup sitting on the arm of the chair. Now you tell me, is that out of place? She could have taken the cup to the kitchen. She literally went through the kitchen to go to her bedroom. She could have taken. Now I, would, I didn't get upset with her. I continued to write my conclusion of my sermon. I finished it up. I was tired. I went to go do the other things that I needed to do. And I left the cup on the arm of the chair. I didn't take it to the kitchen. Half an hour, 45 minutes later, I sat down in the living room briefly to pack up my stuff to get ready to come to church. And I noticed that the cup that was on the arm of the chair previously was gone. Because my wife took the cup to the kitchen. Now, ironically, there also was a cup, not my cup either, that was sitting on the table beneath the, the TV. And that cup was missing as well. Because my wife took both of those cups to the kitchen. Now, it only took her a few seconds. But it took her longer than it would have taken Ariana. And since I got up from where I was seated and walked through the kitchen as well, it took her longer than it would have taken me. And if it took her seven seconds longer than it would have taken me, and that happens a million times in our lifetime, that's seven million seconds. The price extension is too great. You cannot leave undone that which is yours to do. You cannot leave unfought that which is yours to fight. You cannot leave a mess that which is yours to clean up. You cannot leave dirty and sullied that which is yours to spruce up. Fix your mouth. Fix your mind. Renew it in Christ because the price extension is too great. Worse than that, this, scientists will tell you, even who do not know Christ, creates internal error pathways. Once you have sinned against God or done something lazy or what someone might call stupid, you are more apt and able and most likely will do it again. If you have ever left a garbage bag on the middle of your living room floor and stepped over it, the next time it will be easier to step over next time. You say, no, it won't. I'll get it next time. I submit to you, you'll step over it 
easier next time because you stepped it over it the first time. And if you step over it a second time, the third time will be easier. And the fourth time will be easier. And then something will motivate you to finally fix the problem, whatever it is, might be getting your mouth under control or changing your TV choices, whatever, something will finally motivate you to fix the problem. And then you will massively fix it. You'll pray, God, please help me. I'm stuck. I need to fix this thing. It's become a massive pathway in my life, a habit that I cannot defeat. I only hope for your sake and for mine. That Jesus doesn't come again before then. Because if he does, what happens if he visits your house on the day that he comes again and he finds it all dirty and nasty or your life and finds it all dirty and nasty and unpure and you've made no real attempt? What happens then? What if he says, ah, I'm not going to stop in there. It's a little too uncomfortable. Those internal error pathways, they are called sin nature or flesh nature, and everybody has had them since Adam and Eve, but the moment you got saved, you gave them up. So stop creating them now. Notice that requiring miraculous intervention to fix these things is actually, quote, testing God, unquote. And who said that we shouldn't test God? Jesus himself. It's not only potential hypocrisy, but it will eventually interfere with your ability to follow Jesus to live a holy and pure life. No matter how small it is, a thing out of place always affects the place that it's out of place in. The thing will develop its own personality just as the axe and the shovel in the yard grow weeds up around it because we're mowing around it. It will develop its own personality that personality will vibe for control. And if you're a saved Christian and someday you become a thief, you were never saved at all. Are you a thing out of place? Do you have a sin nature that's basically in control of your life? And you've never turned your life over to Jesus and said, okay, I'm going to let Jesus be in charge of my life. Well, you know how to do it. Jesus said you must be born again. You've got to have a fresh start in Jesus. Jesus actually said that to Nicodemus, who was probably one of the holiest men of his day, fasting two days a week, memorizing whole books of the Bible, preaching the word in season and out of season in front of every Jewish congregation because he was very in high demand, history tells us. And he said to Nicodemus, who by all standards of holiness was not a man out of place, he said, you, my, you sir, will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So be born again. Stop telling Jesus, no, I'm a thing out of place and I'm okay with it. And allow him to put you in the kingdom of God where you belong. Are you a thing out of place? Every man who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, every woman who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a thing out of place because you were created for a right relationship with a holy God and you can't have it unless you have holiness and you can't get holiness unless you get it by being born again through Jesus Christ. Let's say, for example, you think that you are not a thing out of place. You've been saved. You know Jesus. You're living for Jesus. Then I ask you this. Do you have things out of place in your life? Do you have things out of place in your life? Is your attention in the wrong place? Are your motivations not true? Are your actions not in line with who Jesus is and who you're trying to be in Christ? Then you repent. You turn to God today and ask for a miraculous intervention so you can be the kind of man or the kind of woman or the kind of young person that doesn't become disqualified to enter the holiness of Jesus Christ, the holiness of worship of God for an eternity. You are responsible for what happens in your life. Wait for it. Even what other people do to you, that's not your fault. You're not responsible for what they did. They will answer to that from God. But you're responsible for what you do in response to what they did. You must repent and turn to God and line up your actions, your motivations, and your attentions with the God of the universe. And if you won't, but you claim to be a Christian, that is hypocrisy. 
That is you saying you are something, but allowing yourself grace. And grace is a thing that God gives, but it is not a thing that you give yourself. It is a thing that he gives us. And God is telling you, you need purity. God is telling me, I need purity. It's time we made the tough choices, got our appetites under control, got our attentions where they belong, got our motivations correct in line with Christ, and paid attention to what God is doing in this day. Will you repent? Maybe you say, I'm in the right place. I'm a Christian. And my house, my life, my things, my conversation, my, the way I live, it's all in the right place. And you have a real reason to praise God this morning as we sing this final song. And you ought to be singing. If it's a screech, it ought to still be just as loud because He is God. And if He gave you that, that you don't need to repent and turn to Him again today and be corrected, be set on the right course, have your attention adjusted, your motivations fixed, and your attitudes and actions in line with the Lord, then you have every reason to praise the Lord. Do not harden your heart against His appeal. He loves you, and you were created for a right relationship with God, and that is purity. I ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in our closing hymn. If you're here today, you don't have to sing. If the Lord is speaking to your heart, then you just listen to him. And if he is asking you to come forward, if he's asking the public to make a decision, say, that's me, I need to fix this, I need to do that, I need to repent, turn to the Lord, whatever it might be. But you need to give your life to Christ in earnest for the first time and be born again. And you come, you do that, or you do it right where you're standing, and let God be in charge. It's not about what I think. This is not even about what you think. It's about what's going on in our hearts right now. And I, for one, repenting give myself to live a life of holiness and purity. And I would ask you to join me in that. Would you stand with me? If you're willing and able to do so, stand and let's sing this song. And if you're responding, you have to sing, you just come or you just let me know right where you are and let you speak in a moment. Make this next one your prayer this morning. Here we go.